Well, as we turn back to the Gospel of John this morning, I just want to um, ask you to be praying for me uh, the next two weeks. Um, On Wednesday, I have the privilege of getting on a plane and flying to South Africa for two weeks and going to be doing uh, three pastor's conferences back to back to back um, with a buddy of mine that I graduated with uh, from the Master's Seminary along with Rick Holland. Some of you know Rick Holland. He's been here before as a conference speaker and we're going to fly over from Atlanta to to Johannesburg and we'll be in Pretoria, Polokwane and Cape Town. Uh, these next two weeks, um, just preaching, teaching God's Word to pastors, to lay people, uh, and so really, really excited about the opportunity. Not looking forward to being gone that long from my family and from from you, of course, but uh, I would really covet your prayers uh, that the Lord would use our time uh, over there uh, to be a blessing to the church in South Africa, and uh, thank you for uh, being generous and gracious uh, in being, being willing to give up your pastor uh, for, for times like this and for purposes like this to bless the wider body of Christ outside the walls of this church. And uh, I trust that I will be a blessing uh, on your behalf, on our behalf as a church here in Montgomery, Texas, there to the churches in South Africa. So thank you for your prayers in advance. Well, we're going to be looking again at John chapter 18. And I want to read for you uh, verses 28 through 38 and just pick up where we left off last week after uh, Jesus was arrested and brought before Annas, the uh, high priest, or at least the one who was regarded as the high priest, and then also looking at the denials of Peter there in the garden of Gethsemane, or in the, in the, in the uh, courtyard of the home of the high priest. And now we transition uh, from the Jewish trial of Jesus Christ to the civil trial, the Roman trial, and it begins with Pilate in verse 28. John records, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your nation, your own nation, and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Father, as we... uh, approach you again this morning. We are coming to ask for your help in understanding uh, this interchange between Jesus and, and the Jewish religious leaders and Pilate. Lord, your spirit inspired John to write these very words, and uh, we believe that they are your very words, and we want to know exactly what you meant by what you had John write here and how it applies to our lives today. And so grant us grace now as we study your word together that we would go uh, away from here, uh, impacted and changed and more conformed to the image of Christ. We pray this in, in his name. Amen. Well, if you've been following the news, you know that this past Friday, a federal jury sentenced 21-year-old Yohar Sarzane to death by lethal injection for his role in the Boston Marathon bombing back in 2013 that killed three people, wounded over 260 
And during the sentencing phase, the jury heard the testimony of 63 witnesses, including victims of the attack and, and friends and family members of, of Joe as he goes by. Uh, the prosecution portrayed him as a heartless terrorist, while the defense depicted him as a caring kid who was led astray uh, into terrorism by his older brother. But after all the questioning and the cross-examining, the jurors saw no remorse in this young man and decided that the death penalty was the fitting punishment for such a horrific crime. Well, this morning, we are going to see how Jesus was cross-examined by Pilate after being convicted of blasphemy by the Sanhedrin, which they believed was a horrific crime punishable by death. However, as we've already read, they were uh, under Roman rule, and so the Jewish religious leaders did not have the authority to put Jesus to death, and so they had to work through the Roman legal system. And so they brought Jesus to Pilate, hoping that he would pronounce judgment on him and sent him him to death by crucifixion. We mentioned this last week that Jesus actually was subjected to six trials total, three before the Jews and three before the Romans. Uh, We saw last week... Uh, the, the first two uh, trials before the Jews, one was kind of a pre-trial with Annas just questioning him in his private quarters, and then he was sent off to Caiaphas uh, to meet with uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, really the Supreme Court of, 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 of the Jews. And then uh, there was a final meeting, a final quick decision made that morning uh, by the Jews, and then he was passed off to the Romans where he met with Pilate first, and then Pilate sent him to Herod, and then Herod sent him back to Pilate. And so last week we looked at the first phase uh, of Jesus' religious trial before Annas, and today we're going to look at the first phase of Jesus' civil trial before Pilate. And, and we mentioned this last week, that, that John is the only gospel writer who recorded Annas' role in the trial of Jesus. He left out the trial before Caiaphas and, and the Sanhedrin. And uh, also, uh, John's account of Jesus' trial before Pilate is the longest of all four gospels. So while he left out uh, most of the Jewish trial, uh, he, he expanded, if you will, uh, the, the, the Roman trial. Obviously, because he was writing to more of a, a, a Roman audience, if you will, or really he's writing to the world. And so that's why he embellished this account. And so he recorded Jesus' trial before Pilate with more detail and more insight than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And once again, we find ourselves indebted to John for supplementing the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, with information that's found nowhere else. We have it right here before us. And so this drama surrounding Jesus' first appearance before Pilate really unfolds here for us in three phases, all of which prove that Jesus was the innocent, sinless Son of God who died in the place of all those who would submit to Him as their Lord and as their King. And so I've broken it up into three simple sections here this morning. Verses 28 to 32, we see the accusation. And then in verses 33 through 38, we see the aggravation. Um, And then finally, we see at the end of verse 38, the adjudication or the verdict. Let's look at the, first of all, the, the accusation in verse 28. It says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they they themselves did not enter in the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Well, according to Jewish law, it was illegal to sentence someone to death in the middle of the night. So the Sanhedrin had to quickly reconvene at daybreak uh, in order to formally pronounce judgment on Jesus. And so when it says it was early, John meant it was early. I mean, this was at maybe dawn that they had gotten back together again, pronounced the judgment, and then immediately brought him uh, before, before Pilate. It was, it was probably a rude awakening for Pilate that day, although he may have already been um, knowledgeable of what was going on because they had, had, had to secure the Roman soldiers uh, to arrest Jesus in the garden, and so uh, he was already aware of what was going down. Uh, and so here they were uh, pronouncing this formal judgment on Jesus early that morning, and yet they were powerless to carry out their sentence of death because the Romans had taken that power away from them. They, they didn't allow any of their uh, oppressed people that Rome ruled over to execute anyone. 
And so they took Pilate to the Roman governor, uh, or took him to Pilate, who was the Roman governor of of Judea. And it says here that they took him into the praetorium which was the hall of judgment or the palace of the governor. We don't know exactly uh, where that's located. It's not certain. It may have been the p- palace of Herod, which is on the west side of the city near the, 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 what is called the Jaffa Gate today, or it may have been the Tower of Antonia on the north side of the temple enclosure where the Roman barracks were located. All I know is a year ago, almost to the day, a group of us from Lakeside Bible Church stood on this underground paved courtyard in Jerusalem that they had recently excavated, and, we, and, and what they believe is that this was the actual judgment hall of Pilate, and we read this passage while we were standing on what may have been the same stones that Jesus stood on. Talk about getting goosebumps, you know, as you're living this out and going, wow, this is amazing. This is maybe where it, it all went down. Well, back then, however, while we were excited to step into those, onto those stones and go, wow, check this out, in, in those days, no pious Jew would have stepped foot in the praetorium because it was a Gentile dwelling and it would make them what? Ceremonially unclean. And in this case, the Jewish religious leaders didn't want to defile themselves and be prevented from eating the Passover meal that evening. And so just think for a moment how this really serves to confirm everything that Jesus ever said about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Israel. I mean, this is the epitome of hypocrisy. Here's the ultimate example of straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. Remember he accused them of that? You worry about straining out that little gnat, but you just swallow a camel whole. Here they were being so fastidious about remaining ceremonially clean before God while they were plotting the death of God's Son. It was a big deal to them not to enter a Gentile's home, but it was no big deal to them that they're murdering an innocent man. Matthew Poole, who was a commentator that that Spurgeon used, um, said this, Quote, nothing is more common than for persons overzealous about rituals to be remiss about morals. Isn't that not common that, that sometimes the, the people who are most zealous about rituals and they look so holy and devout and pious on the outside, but they're, they're, they're remiss about morals. They're, they're living a lives of immorality. We saw that recently in, in recent years in the Catholic Church, unfortunately. It was a tragedy to find out how many uh, priests and, 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 and altar boys and all, those, all that ungodliness that was going on behind the scenes that these men who were uh, so zealous about rituals uh, had no morals. And it was a tragedy uh, in the life of the church. This is a good reminder here that religious rituals cannot earn redemption. Church ceremonies cannot provide salvation. One commentator wrote this about these these religious leaders. He said, in their zeal to eat the Passover lamb, they unwittingly helped to fulfill its significance through demanding the death of the Lamb of God and at the same time shutting themselves out from its saving efficacy. And so here these Jewish religious leaders were, were, were making it possible for the Lamb of God uh, to be crucified, and at the same time, they were shutting themselves out of the results of that. Verse 29, therefore Pilate went out to them and said, well, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said, well, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. Well, it's it's not hard to pick up from this curt dialogue between Pilate and and the Jewish religious leaders, that they didn't like each other a whole lot. In fact, they hated each other's guts. That's pretty much what it was. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, as he was probably best known, uh, was the Roman governor of Judea from AD 26 to 36, uh, served 10 years there in Jerusalem. Uh, Unlike previous governors of Judea, Pilate had absolutely no regard for Jewish customs and, and Jewish scruples. For example, 
on his initial visit to Jerusalem, uh, the Jews were outraged that he showed up with all of the Roman soldiers carrying banners with the image of Caesar Tiberius, which they considered idolatrous and sacrilegious to, to make an image of a, of a man according to the uh, first and second commandment. Pilate uh, subsequently developed a, a reputation of dealing ruthlessly with the Jews. He misappropriated funds from the temple to build an aqueduct. He stole money from the temple treasury to build, to build uh, this aqueduct to bring water into the city. Um, he even had some Jews killed while they were in the act of offering sacrifices. While they were in the act of worship, that, that, that Pilate had them killed. In fact, Luke 13 Uh, verse 1 talks about this. It says, now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So he killed them right in the midst of uh, their their sacrifice, making a sacrifice, and their blood mingled with the blood of the sacrifice. And so needless to say, these two groups, Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders had a mutual disdain for each other, and, and the Jews were actually able to get Pilate recalled to Rome uh, years later uh, by Tiberius. Um, in fact, when the, when the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate here, uh, Pilate was already in hot water with Tiberius because of two or three other prior incidents where he had just biffed it big time, and, and, and so he was kind of on probation, if you will, and he couldn't afford another riot. And so when they arrived early that morning, I'm sure he, the last thing he wanted to do was to deal with this issue, but he begrudgingly accommodated their customs and their rituals and came outside to meet them so that they wouldn't have to defile themselves. I can just imagine Pilate walking out there going, right? I mean, just, why do I have to do this? So stupid. And so Pilate abruptly just asked them to state the charges. What, what, what do you got on this guy? And, and notice how elusive their answer was in that they, they never mentioned any formal charge. They just got to beat around the bush because they knew that the charge of blasphemy would not hold up in a Roman court. That's what they had charged him of, that he was a blasphemer and he deserved to die. And they, they knew, knew that would a Jewish court or a Roman court wouldn't recognize that, let alone... Uh, Sentence a guy to death for that. And so they sarcastically responded here, well, hey, trust us, Pilate. We wouldn't waste your time bringing you someone who wasn't guilty. We've already tried this guy. We've already sent him to death. We just want you to kill him for us because we can't. So basically, all they wanted was for Pilate to kind of rubber stamp their decision without any further investigation. And and I I think also they wanted to pass the buck of Christ's death to Pilate so the Romans would take the blame and not them. They, hey, we didn't do it. The Romans did it. Now, surely this, this all made Pilate very suspicious. He could tell there was something fishy <laughs> about this case. Um, Pilate was no, no dummy. He knew that these religious leaders were jealous. According to Matthew 27, 18, they were jealous of Jesus' growing popularity and authority, and they were just trying to get rid of him. And besides, it made absolutely no sense for the Jews to turn in one of their own people who was hostile to the hated Romans unless they stood to gain from doing so. So there there was something up with this whole deal. According to Luke's gospel, at some point here, the Jews accused Jesus with these words, quote, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that himself that he himself is Christ, a king. Does that sound anything like blasphemy? They completely changed the charges, which none of which were true. None of these accusations were true. Jesus, in fact, told his disciples to give to Caesar what was Caesar's. When he was asked about, should we pay tax? And he said, absolutely, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God's. He also refused the multitude's attempts to make him king. They were always trying to make him king, and he would disappear. He would bow out. He would escape. 
I mean, just days earlier, he had passed up a golden opportunity to proclaim himself as the king at the triumphal entry when he rode in Jerusalem with thousands cheering for him, Hosanna, the Messiah. He could have stepped up and said, you're right, let's go. This thing's going down right now. He didn't. Again, the the Jews knew that, that, that the blasphemy charge would not be adequate enough to convince Pilate to crucify Jesus, so they tried to pitch the charge as, as a political rebellion against Rome. And so they portray Jesus as this revolutionary who was guilty of inciting rebellion against Rome, and they knew that was an issue that Pilate would have to take seriously. And yet Pilate wanted nothing to do with this, this petty squabble among the Jews, and so he told them, Hey, this is not my problem, this is your problem. You've already tried and convicted him yourself. What, what do you need me for? Go and do with him whatever you think best. And so he, he sought to evade responsibility, getting involved in this matter, and he threw it back on the Jews, but the Jews were relentless. And they appealed to Pilate because they were in subjection to Rome. Hey, because you're, we're under you guys, the only way Jesus could receive the death penalty is if you order it. And we need you to order it. I think it's interesting, though, that they actually could have stoned Jesus if they wanted to. I mean, they, they, they did it a few months later. A group of Jewish vigilantes stoned to death one of Jesus' followers. Who was that? Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And it, apparently Romans kind of turned, you know, turned a blind eye to that. And so they could have taken Jesus out and, and stoned him. But if Jesus had died by stoning, that would not have fulfilled his prophecy concerning the manner of his death. Again, look at verse 32. We are not permitted to put anyone to death, the Jews said, i.e. stoning. Capital punishment in the Jewish realm was stoning. Capital punishment in the Roman world was crucifixion. He says to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Jesus had prophesied how he would die. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Even here in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been very clear the manner in which he would die. In John chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. What a beautiful picture from the Old Testament when that snake was put up on that post and they were to look, when they would get bit by the snake, they would look in faith and they would be healed. That was all about being a picture, a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus on the cross. John chapter 8, verse 28 So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He. Chapter 12, verse 32, and I, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Being lifted up was, was crucifixion. And we've talked about this in, in weeks past, that, that according to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, verse 21, anyone who died by being hanged on a tree was considered what? Cursed by God. Paul repeats that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that Christ became a curse, what? For us. And so the Jews wanted Jesus to be crucified by the Romans, not not only to absolve themselves of guilt of his death, but also to silence once and for all the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. There were still people, even if they killed him, they'd be like, hey, he's still the Messiah. Well, listen, a crucified Messiah was an impossibility in the Jewish mind. How could Jesus be under the curse of God and be the Messiah? All they would have to say is, hey, look, the guy got hung on a tree, and the Bible says anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. You're saying that God would curse the Messiah? I don't think so. And so his messianic claims would be discredited, and their rejection of him would be justified. 
And yet how ironic that it was Christ's crucifixion that was the means of justification apart from the law for all those who would repent and believe. And so we have this initial accusation that the Jews make before Pilate, which leads us to the second phase here that I've chosen to call the aggravation. The aggravation, in, in starting in verse 33. Now, let me say this. Normally, the Roman governor, whoever it was, resided in the city of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, another place you visit when you go to Israel, and it's just a beautiful setting right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and, and, and Herod had built a beautiful palace there, and that's where all the Roman governors like to stay. I mean, if you had a choice to stay you know, inland or by the sea, where would you choose, right? Be by the sea. It's a beautiful, cool breeze, all that stuff, the ocean, the sand, everything beautiful, and, and, and yet during the, the, the feast, whenever there was a great feast that Israel celebrated and the Jews were celebrating in Jerusalem, it was prudent for the governor to go back to Jerusalem in case there was a riot or some insurrection erupted. And the Passover celebration in particular was a very dangerous time since Jewish nationalism was at a, a fever pitch and tensions would run high as the Jews commemorated what? Being delivered from bondage to Egypt. You think that'd be the perfect setting to say, hey, you know, we're in bondage to Rome. We could just kind of revolt against them. And there was all this Jewish national, all this energy and passion. And so uh, undoubtedly, Pilate considered this a major inconvenience to have to leave his seaside retreat to come babysit the Jews back in Jerusalem during Passover. Again, walking back, riding back to Jerusalem. Jews, man. Um, and, and, and so really having to deal with the Jews and now having to deal with Jesus was an added annoyance. It was a nuisance. It was an aggravation to him. And you, you get this sense of aggravation in these verses. Verse 33, therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And so Pilate took Jesus in for, for questioning, a private questioning, and he, he zeroed in on the one charge that really mattered to him. And, and that is, you're claiming to be the king of the Jews. Are you an insurrectionist? You know, are you a political revolutionary? And so he asked Jesus point blank, are, are you the king of the Jews? And, and in the Greek here, the emphasis is on the you. It's emphatic here. Are, are you... The king of the Jews, almost with astonishment, he was expressing surprise. You mean to tell me that you're, you're the king of the Jews? I'm sure Jesus didn't look much like a king at that point. He was dressed in, in some peasant clothes, probably splattered with blood from being already beaten by the, by the, by the uh, Jews in his previous trial. He was bound. He was bruised. At the same time, he didn't fit the stereotype of the revolutionaries that Pilate had dealt with over the years. And in fact, one of the most notorious of those rebels was a man named Barabbas, who had recently been arrested and was on death row right at that moment awaiting execution. And Jesus wasn't anything like that guy. He wasn't angry. He wasn't aggressive. He was calm. He was confident. There was this majestic aura about this guy. His personality didn't seem to match the, the charge that he had been this revolutionary. Verse 33, Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? So Jesus asked Pilate if he was simply following procedure, legal procedure here, or, or did he really want to know who he was? Do you really want to know who I am? Have you heard that I tried to overthrow the Roman government? Has it ever been reported to you that I proclaimed myself as a king who wanted to undermine Caesar's empire? Is this charge based on your own personal experience or, or is this just what you've heard the Jews saying? Do you really think I'm a threat to you and the Roman government? That's what Jesus is asking. Verse 35, Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests deliver you to me. What have you done? And again, you just, just hear the disdain oozing from his voice here. Am, am, am I a Jew? Come on, am I a Jew? I mean, the, 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 there's exasperation here. Um, it seems like he's getting more and more aggravated by this frustrating and puzzling situation. And, 
he not only admitted that he knew of no real charge against Jesus, but he also implied that he was too important to be bothered by these trivial problems, these petty problems of the Jews. Verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And so in answer to his question, Jesus confessed that he was a king, but not the kind of king the Jews accused him of being. He was not not the kind of king that would threaten Rome. There was no need to fear him of leading some kind of insurrection. He he wasn't a zealot. He wasn't a revolutionary. If if he was, he would not have allowed himself to be captured so easily. I mean, remember, he just kind of handed himself over without a fight. And when Peter sought to prevent Jesus from being arrested, and he pulled out the sword and started hacking away at the first soldier, he, the first person standing in the way, uh, Jesus rebuked him, told him to put his sword away, and said, if I needed someone to defend me, man, I could have called 12 legions of angels to fight for him. Again, Christ's kingdom is not of this world. He didn't receive his power, his authority from here. It, it's a spiritual kingdom, not a political kingdom. It was not established or advanced by conquering men through acts of violence like human kingdoms, man's kingdoms, but it was by causing men to be born again and transferring them out of Satan's kingdom to God's kingdom. And by the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom is invisible. You can't see it per se. It's made up of all of us who have repented of our sin and submitted to Christ's rule in our lives. And one day we believe he will return and establish a visible kingdom here on this earth. Daniel talks about that. Revelation talks about that. But until then, his kingdom exists in our hearts, in the hearts of his followers, where Christ reigns as the undisputed king and sovereign Lord of our lives and of this universe. So the kingdom of God, Christ's kingdom is alive and well, I trust, in your heart. And it's moving forward as we advance the gospel, as we share the gospel, we tell others about Christ and how they can know him and how they can submit to him as their king the gospel, the kingdom goes forth. Verse 37, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, well, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus was letting Pilate know that his kingdom wasn't about swords and shields. It was about truth. Rome's weapon was the sword. Jesus' weapon was the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6.17. His purpose for coming from heaven and being born into this wicked world as a man, the incarnation, was to bear witness to the truth about salvation, the plan of salvation. And in this truth, he says that I've come to testify to the truth, the truth. That's a loaded statement. That's a pregnant term, the truth. It it, it includes everything that is true about God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and man and sin and salvation and the church and in times along all the other great doctrines of the Christian faith. That's why Jesus came, was to testify, to to preach, to witness to the truth, to, to, to help us as human beings, sinful human beings, understand the truth of God. And so those, who, so those of us who embrace the truth of God's word are those whom God the Father has called out of this world for salvation and have been given to his son as a love gift. Remember that? That, that the father wanted to give his son a gift to show him how much he loved him and he, and he chose you. He chose me. How cool is that? If you go back to John chapter 10... Jesus already mentioned this whole idea of hearing the voice of the Lord. In the parable of the Good Shepherd, John chapter 10, verse 4, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his 
voice. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and will become one flock with one shepherd. And then verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And so back in John 18, when he says, you say correctly that I'm a king, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What was Pilate hearing at that moment? He was hearing the voice of truth. And so I believe that Jesus' words here were, were an invitation to Pilate to hear and obey the truth about him. Rather than just defending himself, which he didn't need to do, he's already proven that, Jesus was appealing to Pilate's heart to embrace him and to submit to him as the king and be liberated from his miserable existence. In other words, Jesus didn't want Pilate to set him free, he wanted to set Pilate free. That's what Jesus said back in John chapter 8, verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. Verse 36. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so Jesus wanted to set this man free. But notice how Pilate responded to this invitation. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, it's difficult to interpret here exactly what what Pilate meant by that. It's easy to read into that, kind of however you think he may have responded. I mean, was was this sincerity? Or was this sarcasm? Which was it? Ultimately, we don't know for sure. It may have been that, 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 that when he asked this, he says, okay, Jesus, well, what is truth then? Well, what is truth? There may have been a sincere interest. He may have been fascinated by, by this conversation with Jesus. He may have momentarily pondered his own destiny. Maybe just for a fleeting moment, he realized that his, his, his life hung in the balance and he caught a glimpse of a, 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 in Jesus of a truer, uh, purer world and existence. Or as it seems, in light of the context, that the more they conversed, the more aggravated he got. And so it seems that Pilate was probably just exasperated by the lack of truth that he had experienced in his life and career. He's like, yeah, whatever, Jesus, what is truth? You, you, you're claiming, you're claiming to, to know what truth is? I mean, during Pilate's lifetime, Roman and Greek philosophers discussed and debated this very question, what is truth, to no avail. Nobody came up with any sound conclusions, and he's like, seriously, so you're going to tell me you, you, you got a corner on the truth, Jesus? You figured it out? I mean, Pilate was a professional politician. He trafficked in all sorts of lies and half-truths and compromises and and injustices. So it may be that he was sighing, yeah, what is truth? Or sneering. Seriously, Jesus? You expect me to believe that you're you're the truth? You're what everybody's been searching for, trying to find out? Isn't that the question that's been echoing throughout the ages, what is truth? One commentator said this, like skeptics of all ages, including contemporary postmodernists, Pilate despaired of finding universal truth. This is the tragedy of fallen man's rejection of God. Without God, there cannot be any absolutes. Without absolutes, there can be no objective universal normative truths. 
Truth becomes subjective, relative, pragmatic. Objectivity gives way to subjectivity. Timeless universal principles become mere personal or cultural preferences. Listen, beloved, that is the day and age in which we live, where anything goes. And whatever you think is truth is good for you. Whatever I think is truth, whatever they think is truth. And what is the highest virtue in our culture today? Tolerance. I'm supposed to tolerate your truth. I'm so, you're supposed to tolerate my truth. And, 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 and it really comes down, it's not truth at all. It's just our preference. And we, so we, we're, we're all defining our own truth. It's, it's very subjective. It's very relative. Instead of absolute and objective. Listen, beloved, you know this to be true. This is the only objective standard of what to believe and how to live. Right here, this is it. I was talking to... Uh, Hannah the other day about, about uh, that we all reason circularly. We're all guilty of circular reasoning. We all, you all have to, we all have to have a starting point. The difference between Christians and uh, non-Christians or believers and unbelievers is our starting point is the Bible and their starting point is their own mind. And so they, they want to argue with you on the level of their mind. Like, hey, I'm not going to argue with you mind to mind. I'm going to argue with you God's mind against your mind. And let's, let's play by the rules, okay? And so the point is, we, we, we have this, this, this source of truth in God's Word. Well, I think Pilate's response, if I had to guess, was, was flippant. And his departure was obviously abrupt as he immediately turns and went out again to the Jews I think this just proved that he didn't really want to hear the truth because he didn't care about the truth, nor was his life characterized by the truth. I mean, if you just look at the guy's reputation, his, his career was marked by all these, these big old mess-ups um, and all these problems that he caused uh, because he was always just looking out for himself and his, and his job. And so what can we conclude about Pilate? Because Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Did Pilate hear his voice? He didn't. So he wasn't one of those who the Father had chosen to save and give as a gift to his beloved Son. Again, John 8, 37. Jesus said this, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Jesus' words had no place in Pilate's heart and mind. Had no room for it. And what a tragedy. The truth incarnate was standing right in front of him. Right in front of him. But he didn't recognize him. And he turned and he walked away. What a tragedy. What a tragedy if you've been sitting through this study of the Gospel of John and you have the the word, the truth of Jesus Christ you're, you're right in front of you, staring you in the face, and you don't recognize it. And you just turn and walk away. Every Sunday, you're like, well, okay, check, went to church, move on, go about my life. You're missing it. Well, there's a third phase here, and it's what we call the adjudication. It's just the verdict. Started with A, so that's why I said it. Notice he says at the end of verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. And so after cross-examining Jesus, Pilate hurried out to the Jews to deliver his verdict. He said, hey guys, he's innocent. The charges you made against him, they're false. It's not true. I don't don't find any fault in this guy. There's no evidence to convict him and and crucify him. He's not violated any Roman laws. He's he's no threat to me or to our our government. In fact, I think Pilate realized the charge that Jesus was an insurrectionist bent on overthrowing the Roman government was absolutely ludicrous. He knew what they were up to. Again, one commentator summarizes this scene in this way, quote, no valid indictment of him at the beginning, no conviction of him at the end. The Lord of glory was maligned, hated, and falsely accused, but nevertheless found to be perfect, faultless, and innocent. 
And consequently, he met the requirements for the Passover lamb. A male in its prime, without blemish, whose blood would be shed to cover our sins. You might want to write down Exodus chapter 12 and look at the requirements for that lamb that was to be killed on the night of Passover for the Jewish people. Well, Jesus fit that description. Well, not only did Pilate show a lack of interest in truth, he also lacked courage and he lacked a commitment to justice. Because if Jesus was innocent of all these charges that had been brought against him, what should he have done? He should have set him free. And he had the authority to do that. At least three times we see Pilate declaring Jesus innocent of any crime, and yet he refused to release him. And instead of letting him go, Pilate decided to play a game with the Jews and use Jesus' life as the prize. And yet Jesus was not a helpless pawn in this chess game between the Jews and the Romans. John recorded this account in such a way where it's easy to see that Jesus was no victim here. He he was not a victim of flawed justice. He was in control of this entire proceeding. In fact, Jesus was not on trial. Pilate was. And so are we. See, the truth of God's word condemns all of us as sinners who deserve to be sentenced to death and hell for all eternity. But the good news of God's word is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the sinless substitute who willingly shed his blood on the cross to pay for our sins. And if we will turn from our sin and we will trust and obey him as our Lord and as our King and seek to be part of his invisible kingdom and and, and his spiritual kingdom, then we can be born again. We can be saved. We can be rescued from our sin. That is the That is the truth, beloved. The question is, are you hearing it? Are you hearing it and are you doing something about it? What you do with the truth of the gospel of John, what you do with with the message of John, what you do with the truth about Jesus Christ will determine your eternal destiny. Do you get that? Do you hear that? The choice that faced Pilate is the choice that faces all of us. What is the truth? you got to figure that out. What is the truth about life? Why am I here? Where am I going? Well, what is the truth about all this? Who will you follow? Who will be your king? Who will be your king? A lot of you might be your own king. You're, you're sitting on the throne of your own life. Maybe you got some other things serving as your king, things that you're bowing down to, that you're worshiping apart from Christ. Let me close by reading what I found to be very encouraging and challenging from one commentator, Bruce Milne, who has really become... Uh, a dear friend, just reading through his words on the Gospel of John. He said, if this gripping account teaches us anything, it's the emptiness of mere religion. We saw that. The Jews filled with hypocrisy, worrying about not putting their foot on a Roman pavestone, um, and yet at the same time murdering the Son of God. He says it also speaks of the wonder of God's salvation. The authorities are determined that Jesus would die by crucifixion under the curse of God and they will have their way. And in the wonder of God's grace, however, their wish coincides precisely with our need because we all live under a curse, the curse of the law, as Paul calls it in Galatians 3.10. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. In other words, we all break the law. And we do that, we, when we break the law, we fall under the curse, the curse of guilt in the presence of God. 
a curse we experience daily. We desperately need some means whereby the curse is lifted from us. We need a Savior who will bear the curse for us. That is precisely who Jesus is. As this passage clearly shows, by dying on a tree, he's become a curse for us. The judgment of God against our law-breaking was taken by him on the cross, a crucified Messiah, A Messiah under curse is the only Messiah who can meet our need and reconcile us to the Father. And then he said this, and this section also underlines the urgency of decision. The urgency of decision. The choice that faced Judas, or excuse me, Pilate, in Jerusalem is still before our world. Whom will we follow? Whom will we make our king? Jesus still stands before us also, offering his way of truth, a knowledge of the Father, which beginning in the valley of confession and repentance, leads forward along the pathway of daily surrender to him as Lord, though on the surface less attractive, however, the choice frees those who make it serve him in the world, who make it to serve him in the world. It carries them at the last beyond the passing shadows of the earthly into the enduring order of the kingdom which will have no end. The question is, who is our king? The world still chooses, and so must we all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how piercing it is to our hearts. Lord, these aren't just some ancient stories with no relevance for us today. But there is alive today as they were back then, and we, all of us, as it were this morning, we're standing in that praetorium, face to face with the truth of Jesus Christ. And we all have a decision to make what we're going to do with that truth. Are we going to continue to be our own king? Or will we submit our wills and our lives to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Lord, I pray that you would soften hearts even now that you would grant repentance and faith to children, to young people, to adults here this morning. Lord, that we would all understand that Jesus paid it all on the cross. And he requires us to give him all as an act of gratitude and thanks for his great sacrifice for us. Lord, while Pilate mocked the fact that Jesus was a king or even questioned it, the Jews mocked it. The Jews mocked that Jesus was the king. Pilate questioned whether or not he was a king, wondered if he was a king. Lord, I pray there'd be no question in any of our minds. Lord, that we would be absolutely convinced that Jesus is the king who is worthy of all of our honor and worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.